Welcome to the Elevate Your Event podcast, where we talk about how to plan and execute an unforgettable event that will dazzle your guests and generate more income for your organization. From fundraising and securing trendy auction items to event production and logistics, get the best tips and advice from seasoned fundraising and event professionals who have been in your shoes. Welcome back to the Elevate Your Event podcast, where we talk about all the ways we can help you improve your next fundraising event. And I am absolutely thrilled to have a special guest on the podcast with us today. This is Ed Chansky, and and Ed and I, we met under those circumstances that most companies don't want to meet under, which is discussing raffle laws and legal matters. And so fortunately, Hambid came upon Ed and his law practice, and we've just learned a ton and so much that it's one of those things that I would say, when we were talking about other types of topics for this podcast, we're like, we we need to come back and revisit this because raffles are just one of those things where there's just a lot that's not well understood. So joining me in the studio today to chat with Ed is Kristen Wheeler. Say hi, Kristen. Hi, Kristen. (laughs) And Ed, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background. Well, Jeff and Kristen, thank you for inviting me today. My name is Ed Chansky. I'm with Greenberg Traurig. We're a global law firm with about, well, now close to 50 offices all around the world. I'm in the firm's Las Vegas office. I've been here about 15 years, and I typically will describe my practice as sweepstakes, contests, rebates, coupons, trinkets, and trash. (laughs) <laughs> Love it. Promotion and advertising, things that are consumer facing, particularly with promotional offers, free gifts, gift cards, prizes, whatever. Along with that, a subset of that area is the law of charitable sales promotions, cause marketing, the marrying up of charitable fundraising with commerce. We've all seen this, the kind of thing. In October, every product in the supermarket turns pink buy this item, some money goes to charity. Through that world, I've become very active over the last 30 years in advising both charities and businesses on many aspects of charitable fundraising. So that's how I come to this world. And a caution today, while I'm happy to talk about the raffle laws, nothing today is intended as legal advice. This is for general educational purposes. And if you have an, an individual situation, you should, of course, consult your own lawyer. Okay, well, and, and end of the cautionary disclosure. No problem there. And, and definitely, if you are looking for an attorney who knows a lot about this, shameless plug for Ed and his law firm, <laughs> and we'll make sure that you guys have that information. But let's, let's dive into this. And, and, you know, obviously, I think in most cases, you know, and, and I've founded charities, I would say that most of them just probably don't have a clue when they start out like kind of what the regulations and laws are at least we didn't you know we're a small charity we're focused on you know this was the prader willie syndrome association of colorado was the first one we started and then we ended up i was involved in growing and kind of getting going the foundation for prader willie research and in all of those areas you know there was a lot of you know oh we, we you know we ran into this issue or you know, we ran into this, you know, regulation or restriction. And then when we build Handbid, people start asking us, right? <laughs> well, do we do this? yeah. And do I charge tax? We're not going to get into tax today, but like, do I charge tax on auction items? And do I have to register? And what does that look like? And we had kind of stumbled and stubbed our toe a few times. So we had a little bit of advice to give, but we learned the hard way was in the state of Colorado, we decided we were going to do a raffle. And somebody pointed out to me, and I'm not sure who it was or even if they were involved in the charity fundraising space, but you know you need to have a license for that. Well, and I think the overall attitude with charities and nonprofits, especially the smaller ones, it's like, okay, sure, but who's going to actually come after little old us for our (laughs) raffle? And Ed, I'm sure that you have had some, some experience with that. Yeah, well, with both of those issues. And so why don't we spend just a couple of moments 
to place charitable raffles in context in the legal regulatory world. Sure. And then we can shift into the enforcement and kind of practical risk issue. Kristen, you know, in the spirit of your question, gee, am I only driving 56 miles an hour? Is the sheriff really going to care? Right. Maybe, but you got to look at the facts. Okay, for context, for over a century in the United States, every state in the country has laws making lotteries illegal. Private lotteries are illegal. A lottery is an activity that has three elements. You need all three. Chance, okay, there's a drawing. Prize, okay, we understand that. And consideration. For purposes of today's discussion, that means paying money. Okay. Pay money for a chance to win something. Ding, ding, ding. You've met the definition. You have an illegal lottery. Now, starting about 50 years ago, individual states, because the state government makes the state law, said, well, we want to make money on this. We want to put the local mafia numbers runners out of business. So we're going to offer our own lotteries from the state. So to anyone who's going to say, Chansky, what are you talking about? Lotteries are illegal. They're everywhere. Yeah, if you're the state. Are you the state? Probably not. (laughs) Okay. Now, one other exception. Baked into state law, in most states, not all. Florida, for example, is different. I'll come to that in a second. In most states, there are laws allowing charitable gaming. That could be bingo. It's very often raffles. And these laws were intended as an exception, a narrow exception, a local exception, a way for the local church bazaar to have their little fundraiser along with the bake sale and sell some 50-50 raffle tickets or whatever they were going to do, subject to many, many restrictions. And this is where people miss the boat very often because they've all seen charity raffles and it's kind of imbued in our consciousness. Oh, well, charity raffles, they're okay. Everybody does them. Yeah, but in fact, in order to run a lawful charitable raffle, you have to look at the laws within your state and consider, and we're going to go through a list of things now. First, as Jeff had mentioned, in almost every state that allows charitable raffles, you have to apply for and get a permit. Okay, where do you apply for and get that permit? Well, that will vary. In some states, it's at the state level, maybe from the Secretary of State's office. In other states, it's at the county level, maybe from the sheriff's office. In some states, it's at the municipal level, in town hall. While the Connecticut law, I practiced in Connecticut for 20 years before moving west, has changed a little bit. Back when I was practicing there, the process looked like the following. And this isn't to dwell on any one state, but just to give you a flavor of how ipsy-pipsy and, and, and complex and arcane these laws are. I'm going to go fast because the details don't matter. You had to go to the chief of police in the municipality where you were going to hold the drawing and submit your application. If approved by the chief of police, it would then go to the special revenue division of the state police where they would ask to review the copy that would be written on the sequentially numbered paper tickets that would be issued and sold only by volunteer members of the organization. No other form of sale was allowed. And when you held the drawing, eventually, in the municipality where you first went to the chief of police, you had to do it using a receptacle from which you drew the numbers that you rented from a list of vendors approved by the state police. That's how complex this can be. That's just an example. Okay? That's crazy. Right. Now, the permit that you get, where is it valid? Well in some places statewide in some places like in nevada in the county where you got it and the geographically contiguous counties but nowhere else and in some states only in the municipality illinois is an example of that so even if you've 
and by the way, only a charitable organization resident within that state, has to be local, can apply for and obtain the permit. So now that you've gotten your permit and you're only going to sell within the geographic footprint where that permit is valid, and you have to consider, does the state allow online sales? Some do, some don't. Most states also have a provision that prohibits paying anyone to assist in the administration of the program. Again, the, the fear was by authorizing and allowing the local church bazaar raffle, it would become a front for the local mafia numbers runner. Hmm. And that the money would get siphoned off and, and, and that this would all be a sham. That was the concern. Oh, by the way, in California, 90%, 90% of the revenue received has to be used in state for the charitable mission purposes of the charity, further limiting the amount that can be laid out for acquisition of prizes, for paying of printing of advertising materials, etc. Uh, one other thing, I mentioned Florida before. Florida is one of a small minority of states where even if you've jumped through all of these hoops and you've threaded all of those needles and you've gotten to the promised land of where you've got your permit, you're offering it only in the geographic area where it's allowed, you're using only permitted methods of sale, maybe you're renting your drawing receptacle from, you know, all of this stuff, and you're not paying anybody else to do it. In Florida, you have to offer a free alternate method of entry. You cannot require a purchase of the ticket, even for a licensed charitable raffle. So could that be an entry with purchase of your event ticket or how? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. That costs money. Free means free. So wow. is, this sounds like the prize drawing workaround that a lot of our charity clients bring to us, which is the, oh, I'm not going to run a raffle, Ed. I'm going to have a prize drawing, and I'm going to put suggested donation on the page. And, you know, who's really going to come up to me and demand free tickets kind of thing? Does that get them off the hook? Well, possibly. <laughs> you're going to have to scratch a little deeper into the facts, but you're on the right path. And let's take a detour for a moment okay. and do an imaginary visit to a fast food restaurant. Take your pick of which one you like, KFC, McDonald's, but it doesn't matter because they all do this. You know, and it's, you know, with every item that you buy this month, you will get a scratch card for a chance to win, or you're entered in our drawing for a chance to win. What are the first three words in the advertising? Purchase not necessary. Or no purchase necessary. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's where your charities are aiming to be to replicate what the commercial sweepstakes operator is doing. Because remember, to be an illegal lottery, you need chance prize and consideration. And so if you knock out that third element, if you say, yeah, look, we make it fast and easy, you're automatically entered when you purchase your Big Mac or whatever, but no purchase necessary. You can also write to PO Box whatever, or you can go online and fill out the form, and you'll also be entered with an equal, I emphasize equal, this is where you might have an issue, an equal chance to win. Yep. If those facts are true, then, yes, you are outside of the, the raffle laws, but now you better make sure that you're complying with all of the laws governing commercial sweepstakes programs. <laughs> that sounds like another podcast. <laughs> well, not really, because it's far simpler. You know, you generally don't need the permits and this and that. And if, you're, if a charity is doing it, you also avoid registration and posting of bonds in New York and Florida. They have laws that say if you're offering total prizes, total, combined, aggregate, not just the biggest one, total prizes over $5,000 in New York and Florida, the company, let's say it's Heinz Ketchup or it's Coca-Cola or it's American Airlines, whoever it is, they have to post a bond and register the program with the state. That's when you're promoting commercial goods and services. If you're a charity, you don't go that route. You go the raffle route. But in, what I mean in Florida is, you know, with the free entry option. And in all other states, you just call it a sweepstakes, an opportunity drawing. People use all kinds of terms for it. But you have to make sure that the free entry option is equal. 
And here's an interesting little story about that. Okay, if, it's, if the sale of the tickets is just one at a time, buy the ticket, it's $10. And hey, you skinflint person who doesn't want to support the charity but you still want a chance to win the prize, yes, feel awful about yourself. You can submit a form here and you can also have an equal chance. Okay, not a problem. What happens if you have the very common situation of saying, okay, it's $10 for a ticket, but for $20, we'll give you three, and for $50, we'll give you 10, and, and that kind of progression. Mm -hmm. Well, for each free entry request, how many tickets are you going to give? Right. One. Well, most people would give one, right? Well... And most people might have a problem in some states if they do that, depending on the facts. Let me discuss the Big Macs and the Popsicles so that you can understand what I'm talking about. Don't you love all of this food I stuff? Do. It's making me I'm hungry. Making me hungry. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> so what am I talking about? All right, in a Big Mac promotion, and I'm not picking on McDonald's or any company, just by, by example. And let's go back to my example, the million dollar game. Every time you buy a Big Mac this month, you are entered in the drawing for a million dollars. No purchase necessary, also right to P.O. Box, whatever, fine. Big Macs typically, generally, most of the time, regularly are sold one at a time. Now it is true, I could be hungry, I could buy two. Or I could have my kids softball team with me and I could buy 40. But is that the regular purchase pattern? No. no. Is it a pattern that is being packaged and offered directly by the restaurant? No. On those facts, a one for one, because the normal purchase pattern is one at a time, a mail-in request, or I'm not, mail isn't the only method, but a free entry request would replicate the real world experience. That's the main idea. Okay, so that's one-to-one. -one. Now close that eye and open your other eye and be in the supermarket at the freezer cabinet and you see a box of popsicles. And the popsicles say, hey, this month when you buy these, lick down the popsicle and on the stick look to see whether you win a prize. Okay? The popsicles are sold 12 in a box. They're only sold in boxes. They're not sold individually. Therefore, any purchaser will receive how many chances? 12. Mm -hmm. Therefore, anyone writing in for the free alternate method should receive how many chances? 12. Exactly. So, the Popsicles and the Big Macs illustrate that the number of free entries that you give with each request may vary and will vary depending upon how you most closely replicate the purchase experience to maintain what often is referred to as equal dignity mm -hmm. between the free and the paying method. Now, let's get a little fancier. Years ago, I had a client who had, a, in the early days of smart credit cards, and they were going to give one entry in a monthly drawing for every dollar you spent on the card. Well, what they had to do was figure out what was the median transaction, what was the typical, the middle of the bell curve transaction. And it turned out it was $43 on a single transaction. Some could be less, some could be more, but as a rough justice approximation of the real world purchase experience, every free entry request resulted in 43 entries to try to replicate that typical middle of the bell curve, most common level of entries that a payer player was, would get. Right, that makes sense. So, so how many free entries are you required to give? So let's go through a couple of scenarios here. So uh -huh. scenario number one, I call in or I submit in and I ask for a free entry and you give me my 43 entries. Yeah. Can I do it again or is, is the organization not obligated to give it to you a second time? That depends. The, the guiding principle is equal dignity and equal parallel treatment to the paying world. OK? 
can a paying person get more than 43? If they pay for them. Well, right. you cannot impose a limit on the free world any more restrictive than what you impose on the paying world. Okay, so I have my prize drawing, and you show up, and you buy the three for 20. Yep. You can turn around and then say, I want another free submission, so you would get three more for free. And the charity would... And I can keep submitting those free requests until the cows come home, unless you impose any kind of parallel limit on the paying player. Got it. Because what if the paying player says, not here's 20 bucks, here's 20,000 bucks? No, I get it. I mean, this is this is helpful for our our audience who's trying to figure out how do I how do I make this work legally, but what are going to be the pros and cons is of that? Is it worth it? Yeah. Well, that's right. And and somebody mentioned earlier. And just keep in mind, we're going to come back to California. We've got a special issue for California that we're going to come back to. Okay, mm-hmm. hold that thought. But you're talking about on the more global level of. Oh my God, if I have to offer a free entry option, didn't I just kill my whole program? Mm-hmm. Am I going to get flooded with free entry requests and people are going to say, well, why should I make the voluntary donation at all? Well, maybe. But if that's true, then why does McDonald's bother when they have to offer a free entry option? Right. It's been shown that whether it's inertia or whether people want to support your charity and are going to do it anyway, you still may make money off of the program. Sure. Also, the number of free entry requests you're going to get, and by the way, there are sweepstakes clubs out there, and they scour the internet, and they look for offerings. Wow. Whether they're from charities, whether they're from fast food restaurants, whether they're from credit cards, it doesn't matter, and they share the information. And there are people who have nothing better to do. They sit and they look for the ones where they think they have the best chance to win and where it's worth their time to be filling out requests by mail and putting stamps on them and mailing them in. One of the biggest factors is how big is the prize? I mean, if you're offering a $100 gift card or, or an iPad or something like that, which is very nice, no, no, not casting aspersion on those prizes, you're not going to spur nationwide outpouring of free entry requests. It's not worth licking a bunch of stamps and mailing in envelopes just for that. You offer a million dollar prize, you're gonna get flooded because word will get out there and people will know about it. But imagine a different context. Let's say your raffle is going to be offered on site at your annual fundraising event. So you have 300 of your loyal supporters who are there for the dinner, they bought a ticket, and you announce during the evening, hey, you know, you can buy tickets for this, you didn't get a permit, so you're offering a free entry option, and you stinkers who don't want to support us, go sit there in the corner with the dunce cap on and fill out the free entry forms. You can do it, but we will publicly shame you with a, you know, with a scarlet letter, if you will. That's right. How many, you know, are you really concerned in that context? that people are going to abuse the free entry method? Probably not. Especially if not if it's like a front row parking space at the school that you're supporting and raising money for. Right. Well, again, that goes back to this is not a million dollar prize. Right. It's not going to attract strangers from halfway across the country. They can't even use that prize anyway, let right. alone with the value of it. So. I'm I'm going to jump back to California just for a second because this is very important to to know on the equal treatment. So we talked about when you have this kind of open-ended, it's not just like Big Macs, it's not just like one ticket for $10, two tickets for $20, and you've got this progression program, you know, where it's three for $20 and ten for $50 and that kind of thing. I would have said, and I still would say, that I believe the correct position is like the $43. What's the most typical transaction? And as long as you're not limiting the number of times that someone can engage in the transaction, then okay, just like somebody who could continue to give you $100 at a time or give you $1,000, well, I could just submit a few more free entry requests, always at the middle of the bell curve, the 43 I, 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 that's not a magic number. Don't lock on to 43. It's just, you know, right. for memory purposes. 
And I would say that that's the correct way to analyze this, replicating the most common typical transaction. I can tell you from direct experience, the California Attorney General's office does not agree. They have looked at some of the online charitable sweepstakes websites, which operate in a, in a more complex way. We're not going to go into detail. But on the one issue of equal treatment, they have taken the position that if the web page has prepackaged levels, let's say one entry for $10, stay with our same math, three for 20, 10 for 50, and you know 50 for 100 or something like that. Their position is the free entry, each free entry request must give as many entries as the highest one-time donation purchase level, I'm not going to say purchase, donation level that's offered on the site. And that anything less than that is not equal in their view for this purpose. That is an extreme position. I, I understand where they're coming from, but I don't think it's really the right interpretation. But do you want to fight with the state, go to court and spend years and hundreds of thousands of dollars in litigation to try to prove you? It's not worth it. No, and, but it's, it's helpful information for our California clients who need to understand how this works. Well, right, and not just your California clients, but anyone offering a program, regardless where they're located, if they have a purpose and or likely effect of reaching a material number of people in California. Hey, so just want to let you know this event is brought to you by Handbit. Handbit is mobile bidding and auction technology software built by fundraisers for fundraisers. So we're able to help you guys with everything from ticketing and registration to mobile bidding to live auction recording, appeals, you name it. And the nice thing is, is in addition to the software that we're able to provide, we have a ton of services we can offer you. If you need help getting everything set up, if you need coaching, if you need just counseling and advice on how to get through your event, if you need someone to show up and make sure that it runs smoothly, these are all the types of services that we offer. So if you want more information about what we do, click on the link below or reach out to us at handbid.com and we'd be happy to talk to you. Yeah, and this has come up with us. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we met you originally. So let's talk about that for a second. So you're talking about purpose and effect. And, you know, I think some of our clients have probably been through, not all, but I'd say some have been through the process of registering themselves, you know, in their respective states and then addressing or dealing with the topic of where else do I need to be registered? And this has, a, this has an impact here. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And yeah, there are, I think, 39 states, give or take, plus DC, that say if a charitable organization wishes to engage in fundraising from the people of our jurisdiction, then as a prerequisite, you must register with us in the state. Now, there are some exceptions for very small organizations that raise less than $25,000 a year. By the way, that's usually interpreted as total, not just from within that state, although some states interpret it that way. So you've got 39 states. And so, Jeff, as you said, so, you know, a, a small or medium-sized charity located in upstate New York, let's say, is wondering... Do I have to register in California? Do I have to register in, in Ohio, in Florida, in Maine, in Hawaii? Do I have to do it? And unfortunately, the answer is a squishy, fact-based analysis looking at purpose and effect. I love Just the like, legal term squishy. I think that's great. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll look up the Latin for it. I'm sure it'll sound even better. Just like... The Big Macs and the Popsicles, let's look at two fact situations on either end of the continuum to try to solidify that concept. Now, I'm sitting here in Las Vegas, so let's assume we have the East Las Vegas Middle School PTA, a 501c3 charitable organization, and they have a website, and they have a Donate Now button to help support the East Las Vegas Middle School PTA. Okay, how many people in New York State, in Ohio, in Hawaii, in Maine, etc., 
do you think are ever going to log onto that page, see that page, care about or donate to that organization? No one, unless they're a grandma or yeah. a grandpa, I'm probably. Just thinking of grandma. <laughs> right, right. You might have a onesie twosie fluke situation of some relative, but the purpose of that page is to reach people in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming effect is going to be only to attract donors. That's the only place where there's a natural affiliation, af affinity, interest of any type. And the likelihood of any substantial impact on another state is negligible. I would say that organization does not have to register itself for fundraising anywhere else. Leaving out any other particular facts, I mean, if, if they know, for example, and let's flip it around and put it in upstate New York, and they know that there's a substantial community of snowbirds who go down to Florida every winter, and they aim their annual fundraising campaign at those people, well, maybe that organization might have to concern itself with Florida. Mm -hmm. But leaving aside now, we're going to leave East Las Vegas, and we're going to go to national headquarters of Pick Your Organization, Coleman for the Cure, Habitat for Humanity, the American Heart Association, the Audubon Society, take your pick, you know, the Sierra Club. Those organizations have nationwide followings. When they put a Donate Now button on their site, who are they intending and hoping to reach? People everywhere, nationwide. Mm -hmm. And as a practical matter, in fact, I bet if you looked, you would find that they are garnering and receiving substantial donations from most, if not all, states. They have to register everywhere. Yep. And we ran into this. You know, and it, it, I was telling you earlier in the podcast, we founded the Prader Willie Syndrome Association of Colorado. It's kind of self-explanatory who we're targeting. Mm -hmm. And I would say purpose and effect-wise, that's, you know, kind of worked out. Right. I mean, the, the massive yeah. effect of what we're doing is is kind of centrally located here. But then I joined the board of the Foundation for Prada Early Research. That was very small at the time. But we were planning on running events everywhere, all across the United States. And then it came up to us, you need to register. And we made a decision even. So I, I just don't want our readers to think it. you have to be the American Heart Association to have to do this. Right. So we made a decision as a very small organization. We have to register in all 50 states. And it is, it's pain, okay? There's no doubt about that. I remember I was, I had various hats, but, you know, one of them as a board member, some of these states require you physically sign documents. Now, Colorado, I mean, nicely is, is online, so you can kind of just fill out some forms at the Secretary of State's website, and that worked out well. But some states aren't. You know, and, and I don't know. It's been a while since I've been involved in that. I mean, there was a URS that was created at some point to kind of simplify that process for charities so that you could – it's almost like the Common App now in college. You know, it's like you can fill this thing out once, but it wasn't supported by everybody. And, and I think it is still a challenge. And, you know, we go to these fundraising conferences. There are companies – whose sole job is to handle all of your annual registrations across the country. So I think it's still, it's still there, is it not? Absolutely, and your description is spot on. I have very little to add to it. There's been discussion among the group of state regulators. They actually have an organization. It's a subset. There's, a, there's one organization called the National Association of Attorneys General with a great acronym, NAG. <laughs> I know, I was trying to quickly yeah. <laughs> calculate some, that. <laughs> some refer to it as the National Association of Aspiring Governors, but we'll leave that aside. Still NAG. <laughs> right. And there's a sub-organization within that, NASCO, the National Association of State Charity Officers. And so NASCO, are, are the, the, some of them are from Secretary of State's offices, some of them are from AGO, but these are the people in the 39 states who regulate charities this way, who review the paperwork that Jeff was talking about. And they understand, they know that this is a complete patchwork, that there is very limited consistency and efficiency of scale. and. They talk about, oh, well, you know, we're going to create a single, we, we, we like the idea of a single portal where one could go and just fill out one form online and it's done. Think of like TurboTax and you're done. But it has never happened. 
And unfortunately, there's an institutional bias against it. Hmm. Because the more you simplify this, well, the people who are running these individual state offices may be legislating themselves out of a job. Hmm. Self-preservation. Never seen yeah, that no, as I'm not, I'm, not in, I'm not saying, I'm not impute, imputing any bad motives, but there's just the, the institutional process by which these individual state procedures built up yeah. starting 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago in an era before an internet, in an era before lots and lots and lots of nationwide fundraising, the state-by-state -state individual process perhaps had more relevance. But in today's world, you do have to question, you know, why do I have to fill out 39 different sets of forms and hand wet signature them and submit and spend $20,000 a year or more filing all of this paperwork everywhere? Why isn't it enough that if someone wants to look up my charity, they can't just go on to Charity Navigator or GuideStar or the IRS site and look at my tax returns? Right. Which they can. Yes. <laughs> No, it's interesting, but 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 it, we circle back to the important piece here, which is you're doing what, whether you call it an opportunity drawing or whatever. Yeah. If, if you decide that you're going to have the free entry option, but you're still fundraising online, you're most likely using an online tool to do it. We'll we'll come back to the platforms here in a second, but but in those cases, you have a question to ask as an organizational board and as an organization in general: Should I be you know, registering myself in these various states. Now, let me ask you a question to, on top of that. What if your platform allowed you to geo-restrict where people could come from? Does that alleviate the issue a little bit or? Sure. I mean, if you would only accept donations, let's go back to East Las Vegas. Let's say you code the site and when someone wants to donate, they have to enter their zip code or whatever. And unless they enter an 890 zip code, which is the three-digit area zip code for around Las Vegas, 891, I mean, unless they do that, they're going to say, sorry, you're not eligible. We appreciate your support, but we're only accepting local donations. Or, or some, th that's what you're saying. If you did that, well, how would New York ever be able to say that you're fundraising in New York? at least via the online platform, you're not even accepting donations from there. Right. And is it where the user lives or is it where they're physically standing at the time that they try to place the donation? I mean, I'm just, I'm getting a little technical here. I mean, are we, yeah. are we actually pulling somebody's location or are you, is it good uh -huh. enough just to say their address must contain these zip codes or these states? Yeah, it, it, it's a fair question. There's no definitive answer. I'll answer it this way. In the related context of online gambling, a far more strict regime, when online sports wagering, for example, became legalized in various states, if you download one of those apps, it's going to be state-specific. That's the way the law works. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you're in... New and forget whether I'm right about which state allows it or doesn't allow it. Right. And let's say that New York allows online sports wagering. I don't know if they do or don't. I don't remember. And so you've got your New York app for wagering with your New York sports wagering company. And you start driving across the George Washington Bridge from Manhattan to New Jersey. You get halfway across the bridge. The satellite is going to geolocate where you are and the app is going to shut off. By law, they have to do that because there's such concern about the gambling and the gambling has to be with, restricted within the state where it's allowed. So they use this really tight lockdown. I've written the contracts between casinos and phone companies to provide that geolocation service. It's accurate to within like 10 feet. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 maybe even more now, but you know, it, it, it's incredible. That would be pretty extreme for purposes of charitable thing because you're not talking about a mobile app. Right. So how would you know? And well, I know a company that has a mobile app. I was just and, curious. Yeah, and what, if, and what if somebody's using a VPN connection? Yeah. So you don't know physically where they are. 
unlike the gambling situation, I would say that if you required people to enter, you know, a billing address and or you were using IP addresses of where they came in, that would be a good enough approximation in the majority of situations to have reasonable comfort that you are not substantially going into another state. Yeah, can you have the onesie twosies, the VPNs and the this and that? Eh, you know, the world's not perfect. Unless you're a casino with online sports wagering, then it has to be perfect. And then you have a contract with AT&T or Verizon and they are geolocating that device in real time. That makes sense. Wow. And and this has been awesome. This has been really, I mean, I've learned a ton. And I've, yeah. I've had plenty of conversations with you. And every time I get on, the, on a chat with you, I learn even more. Let's, let's wrap up real quick. I, I want to ask about, you know, platforms. And, and I'm not just specifically yeah. talking about Hambid, but, you know, a lot of charities these days are using some form of an online platform or tool, right? So, yes, there's their website. But outside of their website, they might be running raffles, sweepstakes, auctions, galas, fundraisers, you name it, using online software. And what recommendations do you have for them? I mean, what, what's the platform's role in helping them understand this? Because I'll just be very blunt. I mean, we've, we've taken a lot of grief from clients because we tell them, you, you cannot run a raffle on our platform the way you want to run a raffle because it's a violation of your state laws, right? And so, you know, and, and we might have, I would say, I'm not going to say we have any sort of legal protection in our contracts that state that we're not responsible, but every client is responsible. But we also have an ethical responsibility, I think, as a platform to be able to tell people, you need to understand the laws in your state. And so what's been your experience there? And what kind of advice do you have for charities around the types of platforms they partner with? Uh. Well, that's a good question. You really have to think of it from both sides. I'm going to start with the platform's side. Okay. The platform is not going to wiggle out of the situation if a state decides that they don't like activity that's happening via the platform. The state is not likely to say, oh, well, we're going to ignore you platform and we're just going to go talk to that charity. You're going to get tagged with the situation too. Mm-hmm. And that is a good reason for the platform to adopt a prophylactic rule, for example, on raffles, that we just don't take them. The, the variation in the law, the complexity in the law, the number of hoops that the individual charity would have to have gone through, and whether this even works online, we're not lawyers. We're not studying the 50 state laws and down to county level and municipal level. And it's such a briar patch, we just don't accept them because it's more trouble than it's worth. Mm -hmm. Even though, in theory, in a limited case, maybe a charity could thread its way through the path and say, well, I have a permit, we're geofencing the offer, the, our state does allow online sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, maybe, but are the platform operators going to want to have to navigate and figure that out case by you? You don't have the bandwidth to get involved in that. So that's looking at it from the platform side. Mm -hmm. From the charity side, have a little bit of sympathy for your platform operator if that's their position, because there's a reason for it, <laughs> because they're going to get tagged and, and, and a state may come and try to regulate the platform as a professional fundraiser or at least as a fundraising council, we haven't really talked about all of the different ways that advisors to charities and uh, you know outside fundraising companies can be regulated. But platform operators historically have wanted to take the position and have taken the position, and it generally has worked in most states to say, Airbnb isn't a hotel, Uber isn't a taxi, I'm not a professional fundraiser. I'm providing a suite of technology tools to you, Charity, for you to run your own program online. You're responsible for your own program online. I'm just giving you the soapbox to stand on. Right. Well, some states, based on the facts, might look at it and say, yeah, but if, if the platform is providing 
more than just a hands-off platform, maybe they should be regulated as a form of professional fundraiser or as a fundraising council, meaning someone who advises but doesn't actually solicit and or handle any of the money. And California has passed a new law to regulate platforms starting next year, it's been delayed in the implementation, where the platform operator, even if they're not doing the asking, even if they're not actively advising, if they are providing the soapbox, is gonna have to register with the state as a platform. It's a unique new form of regulation, hasn't existed anywhere before. To California's credit, it's acknowledging that this is a new form of facilitating fundraising by charities that didn't exist and doesn't really fit comfortably in the old categories. So in that respect, I applaud California and support what they've done. Their current drafts of regulations, I think, are overly complex, and it remains to be seen how they're going to play out. Right. So charities, when you're choosing to work with a platform, recognize you, charities, still remain primarily responsible. Be sympathetic if the form says there are certain kinds of campaigns that it won't carry for all of the reasons we've talked about, particularly raffles. And, you know, you can ask questions about what position does the organization, the, the, the platform take regarding regulation. Don't be surprised if they say, well, we think we're just a technology company. You know, California might be relevant going forward. And, you know, look at the contract terms but you have to make your own decision which ones you're comfortable working with. No, that's good advice. And, and you know, it's it's one of those things where I think for, for any charity out there, you know, understand, you know, also what the platform, when the platform is telling you, like we do, right, we have a policy of we don't allow people to run raffles on our platform. Yeah. And we've taken some grief for it. And, and I'll get the question a lot, which is, well, some of your competitors do. And I'll say, well, that doesn't matter. Like they don't have... They don't have any sort of permit that I don't have, right? So, right. you know, you have, as a charity, you need to, to determine, like, who, who's looking out for my best interest. If you want to run a raffle and you feel like you've got everything in place, then great, go for it. In most of the cases for our handbag clients, and I've, I have studied, I mean, we, 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 these come in all the time. Hey, these people are in Texas. They want to run a raffle, you know, and then you try to explain to them that you cannot have an online raffle that is solicited statewide and then go explain to them what statewide means and, and how you define that. And so when we started looking at all these rules, we were like, you know what, <clears throat> to your point, it's complex. It is, it is not easily understood. And, you know, not only that, we're, we don't, we want to keep our platform fees reasonable, right? If you want you want to pay a reasonable fee for a software fundraising platform will don't require that they involve all these lawyers in every decision that comes into place. And so raffles are kind of one of those. So it's been definitely, um, a, I would say an adventure for, for us and our clients as well. But I think it's ultimately put everybody in a better spot, you know, in terms of now people are a lot more aware of, you know, what they're obligated to do and what they're not permitted to do. And so that's been helpful too. And we've gotten as many, I don't want you to think that all of our clients are saying, hey, we, you know, we want to run raffles and you won't let us. We've had a lot of clients tell us that they appreciate the fact that we have opened their eyes to some of the things that they were not yeah. doing. Yeah, you're, you're, you're helping keep them out of harm's way. And I want to loop back because we kind of deferred it with Kristen way back near the beginning of this conversation. Maybe it's a good place to wrap up yep. on, well, how are these laws actually enforced in practice. And I would agree that for the most part, most of the time, most state regulators have better things to worry about than whether the XYZ charity is running a raffle that didn't dot every I and cross every T. I mean, there were murders and rapes and mass shootings and, and whatever else going on that I would hope the you know the, the law enforcement authorities in this country are focused on that said if something does come to the attention of the charity regulators and maybe it's your arch competitor who decides to blow the whistle on you maybe it's just somebody in that state office having a bad hair day who stumbled across your offer and cross-checked their files and said well wait a minute this isn't right who knows? Or 
maybe like in California, it becomes a policy decision. Hey, we want to crack down on this. We want to set an example for the country. Mm-hmm. We want to establish a first of its kind law and we're going to start off by going after these so-called charitable sweepstakes platforms and force them to change how they do their free entry option and force them to register as professional fundraisers and this and that and whatever, all of which happened. What's the old expression? You know, one in nine, you're fine, and one in ten, you're mine. Who knows whether the sheriff is going to be setting up the speed trap on your stretch of the road and deciding that day that 56 miles an hour is too much. Right, you never, you never know, and you never know. And our it's hearts a pain. are, our hearts are with those who are initiating or in the middle of that process. I've, I have raffled a Harley Davidson motorcycle, and went through that process, and it is not easy. So if you are, if you're in the middle of that, we're, we're thinking of you, and add it to your LinkedIn profile when it gets approved, because that That's is right. an certification, certified <laughs> raffle technician. Yeah, Colorado. It's a hundred bucks, Ed, and it's like a three-hour class you have to go attend. Yeah, and and again, great if, you know, is it only volunteer members of the organization? Is online allowed or not allowed? Are you paying outside people? Are there restrictions on where and how the money can be used? Are you observing the geographical? All of that has to be considered anytime someone gets into raffle land. Yes, yes, And, and a lot of those are required in Colorado, I learned. So. Yeah, and, and it's going to be different in every state. It's crazy. Well, this has been amazing. This has been super helpful. Thank you, Ed, for joining us today. I know that our audience greatly appreciates the non-legal educational advice that you gave. <laughs> yes. Well, absolutely my pleasure. It's been a delight, Jeff, Kristen. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope that there was at least something helpful. For oh, for sure. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for attending this episode of the Elevate Your Event podcast. We'll be back with more ways that we can help you improve your fundraising events in the future.